All right, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. If you're using one of the blue chair Bibles, it's going to be on page 888. Sometimes it's hard to understand how the different parts of our Bible fit together. In particular... Sometimes it's hard to understand, and especially how we should apply parts of the Bible that happened before the death and resurrection of Jesus. Today at our story, we're looking at one of these transitional periods in the Gospels. You know, in one sense, the Gospels are both Old Testament books and New Testament books because they have in them before Jesus and then this transition of the earthly ministry of Jesus and then the death and resurrection at the very end. In one sense, you have the whole Bible in one book. But that means that sometimes it can be hard to understand, well, Jesus hasn't died yet, so how do I apply this and how do I understand this? One metaphor that I use a lot in my own thinking and I think is good for us to use when thinking about these transitional periods in the Bible, in between where Jesus has come at Christmas, but he's not yet died, is the metaphor of training wheels. I want everyone to think of training wheels. Maybe some of you never had training wheels, but you've seen them on the bikes of your kids and grandkids. But training wheels have a specific use. Training wheels are to help give you balance before you can do it on your own. They are good helping tools to help kids learn. I was reminded of this when about, oh, maybe it's been six months to a year when we took off both Lucy and Theodore's training wheels, and I was very nervous because I'm like, I don't know how fast I can drive to the ER on these roads. But when we took them off, right away, first try, both of them started riding. They were ready. They had done their job. They are a good thing. Just because they're only there for a time doesn't mean they're bad. But if we saw someone in their 40s, in their 50s, still using training wheels, or if we looked on, we turned on the Tour de France, and one of the racers had training wheels on, first of all, they'd be awesome because they'd be in the Tour de France, but they'd still be training wheels. We would say, hmm, something's not right, because that's not what those are for. They have their time, but then the point is to eventually remove them from the bike. In the same way, in a similar way, the Old Testament and John the Baptist, who we're going to see in our story today, are like training wheels. They were never the goal. They were never the end of the story. John the Baptist, in particular, had a particular job to point people to Jesus. He wasn't pointing people to himself. He was pointing people to Jesus. And we're seeing in our story today 
one of these stories about John the Baptist, of what happened when Jesus came on the scene, what happened to John, and how did he understand what was happening? And as we look at this transitional story for John the Baptist, I want us to focus on two main ideas that we're going to see. And the first is humility. In this transition of John the Baptist, we're going to learn a lot about humility. And then because of the overarching story of Jesus, we are going to learn more about our salvation in Christ through John's understanding of his own ministry. So our big idea, if you're following along in the, bullet, in the bullets in there in the outline, is saving faith must have humility that recognizes Jesus as God and Savior. So let's first look at humble decreasing, starting in verse 22. Follow along as I read verses 22 to 24. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. So in verses 22 to 24, this is setting the scene for what is about to take place, and we have both Jesus and his disciples. Now in chapter 4, verse 2, we read that Jesus is actually having the disciples do the baptizing, but Jesus is overseeing some baptizing, and John is also baptizing because there's a lot of water, so it's a good place for a baptism. Who said the Bible was never practical? But this is setting the scene, so they're both doing ministry in the same area. And that leads to a discussion with John's disciples in verses 25 and 26. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So in verse 25, we see that John's followers, John's students, John's disciples, and this, this, per, this Jewish person who we don't hear any more about, so don't worry about it, he's not going to be on a quiz, they get into a discussion over the purification rituals of Judaism. And somehow, because reasons, they go to John in verse 26 and they start asking about Jesus. Now look how they describe Jesus. So look at verse 26. Rabbi, that's speaking to John, he who was with you across the Jordan. So they're, they're commenting on the fact that he's very close to them. And then to whom you bore witness. So they are remembering that John has already spoken about Jesus. One example being in John 1 where he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But what else do they notice about him? Look, he is baptizing. He's doing the same thing you do. He's doing your thing. You're John the Baptist. You baptize people. And here is Jesus baptizing. And all are going to him. This Jesus, who's, who's doing the same thing we're doing, 
He's getting more popular. You can hear hints of jealousy, hints of concern. These guys believed in John's message so much that they followed him as his disciples, but now someone else is getting the attention. Someone else is getting people. And so here's the question, John, what do you think? What does John the Baptist think that Jesus is doing the same thing as him and actually becoming more and more popular? What is John's response? Let's look at what John says beginning in verse 27 and 28. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John begins in verse 27 with a general truth. Look what he says. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. What's the truth? Everything we have is from God. Everything. Even ministry. John understands that his calling is from God. One author writes about this and saying, John here tells his disciples that he must neither exceed the calling he received from God nor compare himself with others because everything he has is from God. So his ministry, baptizing people and telling them to repent and prepare for the Messiah is a gift from God. And in 28, John reminds them Again, they talked about him bearing witness to Jesus, but he reminds them of what he said. Not just that he said things about Jesus, but what did he say? Verse 28, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So John knows two things about his ministry. Number one, it's from God. That God gave it to him as a gift. But the second thing he knows is that he was always preparing for somebody else. The ministry was never about him. It was always about Jesus. So there's no place for jealousy. There's a certain contentment in that I have what God has given me and even that is to glorify another. To bring glory to Jesus. And to help his disciples understand this, John gives them a nice little metaphor in verses 29 and 30. Let's look at that. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So picture a wedding party. And John says, the person who has the bride is the groom. 
And his disciples are probably like, okay, yeah, we know. (laughs) But then John turns to what we would call the best man, or one of the groomsmen, we might say. Here, the friend of the bridegroom. What's his job? He stands and hears him. He's waiting for him to come. He's waiting for him to get there for the groom's wedding. It's not the best man's wedding. It's not a party that celebrates the best man. It's about celebrating the groom and the bride. He then says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Why? Because the groom is here for his bride. Jesus has come to the earth for his bride, the church. For his bride, his people. And John can find joy in celebrating someone else. John finds joy in that the party is not about him. And that he was there simply as the best man to celebrate the coming of the groom. And in verse 30, we have this great verse. This is John's opinion of what's happening. He must increase, but I must decrease. His followers are worried about the popularity of Jesus, but John has no worries about that. He has no concerns about his decreasing. And he's saying it must happen because he understands he's the best man, not the groom. I want to pause here because I think, and personally this this. This text has been important in my own life, which I'll talk about in a second. But what are some applications of this? What are some applications of John's humility to us? Because we're not waiting for Jesus. He's already come. We're not the prophet who was preparing the way. That's not our job. It was John the Baptist's job. So how do I apply John's words to my own life? Number one, keep Jesus at the center. Just like John, we're not pointing people to ourselves and our own popularity, we're pointing people to Jesus. This is difficult because we want to be important. With social media and the internet, the drug of popularity is so much more available than it ever was. Our culture loves celebrities. (laughs) And so much of our social media and our internet time is, is, is tempting us with, you can be a celebrity too. John, in his day, was sort of a celebrity. But he didn't want it in one sense. And he was happy to give it up. And just like John... We're not pointing to ourselves, we're pointing past ourselves to Jesus. And that's one expression of humility. 
that I'm not calling people to follow me, I'm calling people to follow me as I follow Jesus. And in that we find joy. Again, this feels counterintuitive, that in humility, and most of the time that means some decreasing, that is where we find joy. Secondly, don't be afraid of decreasing. Let me use John's word here. God is sovereign and calls each of us to play the part we've been given from above. Hold on to that. Every gift is from above. Everything you do for Jesus is a gift from him. And I would add that God has sovereignly, like John the Baptist, given each of us something to do. He's given each of us skills and gifts and people in our lives to exercise those and to love them and to share Jesus with them. Those are sovereignly given. But as we think about the part we are to play, that we should not fear decreasing and being humbled by God. The more and more I experience the life that God has called us to, the more and more I think essential to our faith in Christ, our living out our faith in Christ, is humility. It is essential to following Jesus. Verse 30 is one of these soundbite verses that can help us remember the humility that we need. When I was about senior in high school into freshman, sophomore year of college, that is when I believe God started calling me into pastoral ministry. And I've shared a little bit about that story, but one aspect of that story is this notebook, which I still have. And I would write my notes. One of the things I would do is I would outline uh, passages that I was reading in my time. And God gave me the opportunity to begin teaching in my youth group and things, things of that nature. On the back of this notebook were just verses that I felt were extremely poignant to maturity in Christ and leadership in the church. And one of those verses was John 3.30. It's almost completely rubbed out now because it's been a long time <laughs> since I had this. But you can still sort of see it on that back cover. Interestingly, I shared this story on Tuesday. And Pastor Dave said that this verse was also a part of his calling at that age when he was that age. Now, we don't know exactly when that was because I don't think time had been created yet, but <laughs> Thanks. you can all give Dave a hug after service. But I don't think it's an accident that both of us 
resonated with that verse as we were looking forward to growing in maturity and leadership in the church and beginning to feel that call. And so I, I really recommend to you this verse to, to have in your mind, to have in your heart, that to, to be who God has called you to be, to serve how he's called you to serve, there must be humility in your heart to accept what God has for you. John had to accept that he was merely the training wheels to Jesus' bike. And in that humility, he found joy. We're not always called to celebrity status and to be lauded for our efforts. But even in that humility, we find joy and peace, knowing that God is at work and that God is pleased. In verse 31, we transition. And, and like I said um, last week, about, or two weeks ago, about John 3.16, I believe that verses 31 to 36 are not the words of John the Baptist, but of John the author. Again, writing one of these explanatory notes that I talked about a couple weeks ago. And John, as the narrator of this book, helps us to further understand John's part in salvation history as a larger part of what God was doing. So let's begin by looking at verses 31 to 32. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. All. In verses 31 to 32, John the author shows why John the Baptist was right to accept the humbling and the decreasing of his ministry because John and us are those who are of the earth and we speak in an earthly way. We know part of the story. We know part of what we are supposed to do, but we are always pointing to the way John says it here, the one who is above all. John the author is saying John the Baptist was right because he was an earthly guy, a prophet, but still a person. And he was waiting for and pointing to the better, who is Jesus. He is the one above all, he who comes from heaven. So John was right to point to him. But we see in verse 32 that this one above all, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Now this is a little bit of hyperbole speaking in a very black and white way to show a general truth that Jesus came to earth and spoke about himself that he was the Savior. And by and large, most people rejected him. John shows 
the folly of our ways, the folly of the ways of one who rejects Jesus, because they are not just rejecting another person, they are rejecting the one who is above all. Thankfully, in verses 33 and 34, we see that there are some who will listen to Jesus. Follow along as I read verses 33 and 34. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Verses 31 to 32, we see that Jesus is not just a man. He is the one above all. He is the Son of God who has come in human flesh. And we see that people in general reject his message of salvation. But in verse 33 and 34, we see that there are some who do receive that testimony. And they're smart to do so. Because when you receive the testimony of Jesus, you are believing that God is true. You are believing God when you believe Jesus. Again, part of these Gospels is to show us that Jesus is more than a man. And John is saying Jesus is more than man because he is saying what God says. Look at verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. So to believe Jesus is to believe God. Again, this is a part of John's argument that he's giving to his original readers. Because the question is, who is Jesus? Is he a prophet? Is he just another person? No, he is God himself, and he speaks the words of God. To listen to Jesus is to listen to God. Now, the end of verse 34 can be a little confusing. Let me say a few things about that. The end of verse 34, it says, For he gives the Spirit without measure. There's some confusion as to who is the he and who is getting the Spirit. I think the best understanding of this is that this is talking about what separates Jesus from all the other prophets. Throughout the history of the Old Testament and the Jewish nation, the idea was, and I think a true idea, was that God gave the Spirit to the prophets so that they could do specific work. And it wasn't the permanence that we have today after Jesus. But so in one sense, Jesus had the Spirit without measure perfectly and permanently in a way that set him apart from every other prophet before. One author writes about this verse, Throughout redemptive history, God spoke to his people through many accredited messengers. Each received the measure of the Spirit that was required for his or her assigned task, not so to Jesus. John the Baptist had already testified that he had seen the Spirit descend and remain on Jesus. So again, John is saying, why should I listen to Jesus? Because not only 
does Jesus utter the words of God, but he has the Spirit in a permanent way, setting him apart as the best messenger of God. Jesus, in one sense, is the best prophet of God, the best spokesman of God. Because John is trying to convince us to listen to what Jesus says. And then verses 35 and 36 show us what happens when we believe what Jesus has said. Let's look at verses 35 and 36. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. Verse 35 speaks to, again, Jesus is more than a man. He is God incarnate. He is the Son in flesh and has all things given into his hands. Therefore, whoever, everyone, everyone who places their personal trust in Christ, they will have eternal life. They have the promise that after they die, they will spend eternity face to face with the God who created them. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. I think the reason he says obey instead of believe there is because he's been talking about how Jesus is a messenger. And so the idea is, when we say do not obey, the idea is you don't listen to Jesus. So if you don't listen to Jesus, you will not see life. Because Jesus is the only way to eternal life. Because if you do not believe Jesus, if you don't obey him, if you don't place your personal trust in him, the wrath of God remains on you. Now why does John say it that way? Again, this gets to what we understand about the person. Do you believe that people are, inner, are innately good or innately bad? The Bible believes that we are not morally good or even morally neutral before Christ. That before Christ, we are under the wrath of God. So if you reject Christ, that wrath is still there because Jesus is the one who takes that wrath away. This gets back to what we said a couple weeks ago about the necessity of salvation through Christ. Because we do not believe that people are morally neutral before God. We believe that all people sit under the wrath, holy and perfect wrath of God as punishment for their sin. And so if we take the beginning of verse 36, and we take it to the end there, that eternal life means that if you believe in Jesus, the wrath of God is removed. And here we see again what we saw two weeks ago, that on one hand, the Bible is very exclusive. It is only through Christ that you can have eternal life and the wrath of God removed from you. 
But in one sense, the gospel is completely inclusive. And that is not a particular people, it's not a particular race or ethnicity, it's not a particular social structure or stratus. It is those who believe. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Who does not believe, obey the Son, shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. What John is telling us is that when we listen to Jesus, we will have eternal life. We will have the wrath and the punishment that we deserve removed and taken away. And we will be reconciled to the God who created us by his grace through faith. Let me close with two broad applications this morning. Number one, live humbly before God and humbly with others. John, the story of John here, of John the Baptist, is a wonderful story of what humility looks like in the everyday. And it's a humility towards God, but it is also humility with others that he puts on display for us. And the second is this, listen to Jesus and believe in him. When you place your personal trust in Jesus, you are trusting the one whom God sent, the one whom God gave all things, not just another man, but God in flesh who died and rose again so that you could be forgiven and the wrath of God removed so that you could have his righteousness and that you can have the guaranteed hope of eternal life. Listen to Jesus and believe in him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that by your spirit we would live the humble life that John showed us in today's story. That we would have humility towards you and that we would have humility towards one another. And God, that today, if, if we have not, that we would believe in Jesus and find eternal life and that we would be forgiven and had your holy and perfect wrath removed from us. That we would humbly come in faith to you and find salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.